Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material from the podcast plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. He went to the depths. I, I can remember distinctly a, a case. I said, when you got back from the war, when you got back to Eugene and the University of Oregon, where I live here in, in Eugene, Oregon, what was it like? And he goes, well, it was hell. And I said, okay, what was the first, what was the worst it ever got? The worst it ever got. And he thought for a moment and he said, you know, I would go out for a drink every night after work and in the bottom of my glass of scotch, I could see the, the face of every man I left in Bastonia. An excerpt from today's guest who's written a book about two World War II soldiers from opposite sides who came together and formed a friendship that saved their lives. Author Bob Welsh is here, and I'll speak with him after this break. This is Point of the Spear. Welcome back. I'm Robert Child. Today's guest is an award-winning columnist, speaker, and author. He has twice won the National Society of Newspaper Columnists' highest award for writing. His current book is called Saving My Enemy, How Two World War II Soldiers Fought Against Each Other and Later Forged a Friendship That Saved Their Lives. And Bob Welsh joins us now. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you so much. Now, before we get started, I just want to read a review. Bob Welsh has unearthed history that transcends the battlefield and culminates in a story about peace Forgiveness and Humanity. Tony Brooks, author of Leave No Man Behind. Uh, Tony was here a couple episodes ago. How was it working with him? Tony was, uh, it was amazing. Uh, he was a total neophyte when it came to uh, storytelling, and I was a neophyte when it came to understanding Afghanistan. Right. And so we helped each other through. Um, and uh, his... Uh, his experience was so unlike anything that I'd written about because I'm such a World War II guy right. that uh, it took me a long time to kind of get up to speed and understand, you know, the differences in uh, war and and uh, uh, strategy and uh, gear, uh, you know, from the you know seventy years after World War II. But again, he helped me a lot. Uh, I helped him tell his story and. Uh, and it is a, a rich story. Right. Great guy. Your book, Saving My Enemy, is such an intriguing story. I know it's involving Don Malarkey. How did you come up with it? Uh, I had written a uh, memoir of Malarkey back in 2008 um, um, called Easy Company Soldier. And right. so I, I live an hour from him here in Oregon, or I did at the time. He's, of course, since deceased. And uh, I got to know him. And at one point in our interviewing, he said, you know, I met a German soldier after the war. And uh, at the time we were coming down home stretch. And um, I think I just kind of blew him off, frankly. <laughs> I, just, I just got, oh, that's great, Don. But, you know, we got to get our memoir done. Uh, <laughs> so let's, you know, I didn't, I wasn't intrigued by it. I didn't ask him a whole lot of questions about it. I think it was over lunch and I, we moved on and got back to telling his life story as one of the, uh, the band of brothers in, in World War II. After he died uh, in 2017, his uh, 
daughter, Marianne, got in contact with me and said, you know, I think there's a second story to be told here. And I said, let me guess, uh, the, the soldier that your father met, the German soldier. And she said, yes. And at first, as I sat down with her and her husband, Dan, and discussed this over lunch, I thought, nah, it sounds like a good, uh, you know, really good magazine story or something like that. I'm not sure there's enough for a book. But as I as I listened more deeply and, and the conversation went on, and then later after I, I emailed uh, the sons of the German soldier, uh, Matthias and uh, Volker in Germany, and they were like all in, they were willing to come to America, willing to be interviewed. I realized this was a much deeper uh, textured story than I ever imagined. And, and I'm so glad that I said yes to my second chance, because I think that Saving My Enemies of all the World War II books I've written, I think it is the one that gets most deeply to the experience of a soldier, to the post-war pain of a soldier, and in this case, to the reconciliation of two soldiers, a, a German and American, basically saving each other's lives late in their life after, after 50 or 60 years of uh, terrible PTSD. Yeah, it wasn't identified as PTSD for World War II soldiers. It was correct. People are calling this book a sequel to Band of Brothers. Would you agree with that, or what do you think that is? Yeah, I, I think it's a sequel. Um, I think it's a sequel to Don Malarkey's story. Certainly, a sequel to uh, Easy Company Soldier. And I think it. I think it. Uh, you know, I think we take some fairly healthy shovels full of, of un, unturned soil in this this book. I mean, yeah, we're not the first uh, folks to write about uh, the aftermath of war, but I don't believe you'll find too many stories of, of uh, enemy soldiers not only uh, coming together and becoming friends, but but actually forgiving each other and um, and their their friendship then passing on to their own children. I mean, uh, Fritz and or excuse me, uh, Volker and Matthias are now sort of the the brothers that uh, Marianne never had, and um, and I think that they look upon it the same way that she's the sister we never had, and uh, it was so much fun, frankly, to work with these three individuals because they are so. Um, cognizant of of the pain that their fathers went through and they're so appreciative of one another's fathers for helping unleash that pain and 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 uh dilute that pain and start this whole new friendship they have now in the last three or four years uh, half a dozen times gotten together here in america or over in europe mm. uh, they aren't just uh, casual friends, they're close friends, and it's all because Don and Fritz, uh, in you know, 60 years after the Battle of the Bulge at a at a at a commemorative event in Bastonia, uh, sat down over a couple of beers and and uh, basically listened to each other, heard each other's stories, and 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 were surprised to find that they had each gone through similar experiences of pain. Uh, Don's uh, different in that he he felt a lot of guilt for having killed so many German soldiers, including a 16-year-old boy, and Fritz feeling a lot of, of uh, shame for having served uh, Hitler. And uh, he just 
uh, after the war turned his back on Hitler in a time when a lot of Germans were not turning their back right. on Hitler, actually. And um, weirdly, they come together 60 years later, two very different men, Don, very hard to the right politically. Fritz, by this time, um, 2004, very to the left politically. And yet that wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was basically just sharing from their souls about what it was like to be a soldier, the pain they've been through since the war, and, and how they wanted to get on with their lives, and they did. And they probably found out they had more in common than they did, than they thought they would. I, th I think you're right. I don't want to give away too much of that, of that book because I want people to read it, you know, read the ending and how they uh -huh. get together. So I'm not, that's why I'm not probing you on it. I want people to read it. Talk a little bit about your previous book, with Don, his memoir. Easy Company Soldier uh, is uh, a book that um, I started in 2007, and Don had a handful of different authors he was interviewing to, to, to be his sort of uh, collaborator on this. And uh, I told him, I said, you know, if you want somebody to write a book that starts out, uh, I was born you know, August 31st, 1921 in Astoria, Oregon, blah, blah, blah. Don't choose me. On the other hand, if you want to write a book that helps us as readers understand the soul of a soldier, the, the pain, the fear, uh, the pride, uh, I, I'm your guy. Uh, I, I don't emphasize strategy. I don't emphasize gear. I don't emphasize um uh, battles per se all of them of course come into play they must come into play in my stories but but what I like what I am all about as a writer is is exploring the soul of these people um, uh, exploring courage and and uh, overcoming the odds and things like that so so my book tended to be very um, I don't want to call it touchy-feely that that'd be going too far but but you know a lot of the reviewers on Amazon have said of all the Band of Brothers book, this is the one that got to the heart of a soldier. And, and that's exactly what I was hoping to do. Now, I, I deflect that praise and, and, and give it instead to Don. Here's an 80-year-old, 80-something-year-old man, and, and we're sitting in his basement in Salem, Oregon, back in 2007 and 2008, and he's, he's sharing from the depth of, of his soul. He's, he's in tears at times. He's having to remember things that he just as soon not remember uh, and yet he 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 went to the depths i i can remember distinctly a, a case i said when you got back from the war when you got back to eugene and the university of oregon where i live here in, in eugene oregon what was it like and he said it was tough and i said well what do you mean by that don you know i'm 40 years as a newspaper journalist you can't settle for it was tough so, <laughs> so i said what, what do you mean it was tough and he goes well it was hell and I said, okay, what was the first, what was the worst it ever got? The worst it ever got. And he thought for a moment and he said, you know, I would go out for a drink every night after work and in the bottom of my glass of scotch, I could see the, the face of every man I left in Bastonia. And then I realized in that kind of a comment that I was starting to understand what this was really like, how war really doesn't go away. Uh, we like to believe it. It, it does. Uh, back in the late 1940s, the, the U.S. government was actually telling men, don't even talk about it. Um, it'll, it'll go away on its own. You're going to be fine. 
buy a house in the suburbs, you know, start your business, uh, get back with your families and, and all will be well. Well, that's not the case. And, and that's why you have a guy uh, 30 years after the war, one night after, after he went and had a drink or two or three, uh, he was clearly, uh, uh, you know, an alcoholic. Um, there, you know, he, he was, drove his car east toward Mount Hood with the express purpose of driving off a, a, a rounded turn and, and going off a cliff, killing himself. He felt so guilty for all that had happened in the war. So no, it doesn't just go away. We'll be back to the conversation after this quick break. You know, it's it's really uh, a privilege to be involved with a documentary about uh, the USS Franklin. And the Franklin was something that, uh, that I'd always been fascinated by. And then producer Joe Small and producer-director Rob Childs come to me and say, look, uh, how about if you use your dulcet tones to uh, to tell us to tell the Franklin story? So as I began to look through the story, and as Rob and Joe kept sending me more and more material, uh, this thing was peeling like an onion. I was I was seeing more and more and more of a really really important story in naval history, uh, and one which hasn't been hadn't been told. So, uh, they, you know, they had to uh, throw a two-inch heaving line on me to keep me from charging right down here to the, uh, to the studio and, and helping to put this together. Captain Dale Dye narrates USS Franklin, Auto Restored. Available now on Amazon Prime. Now back to my conversation with author Bob Welsh. And so I think that, I think that Easy Company Soldier kind of... Uh, sort of uh, laid the foundation for saving my enemy and in, in helping you understand a little bit about PTSD. But I think saving my enemy takes it way deeper. And, and um, the, the response we've gotten from readers is that, oh my gosh, I had no idea that it was this bad. And from families of World War II guys, oh my gosh, Don Malarkey was my father. Uh, you know, he, he, yeah. he, his story is my father's story. His family story is my family's story because both men, Fritz and, and Don, um, their, their families suffered a lot for what their fathers had been through in war. A lot of World War II veterans that I've spoken to, um, the films I've done in books, are, are always kind of stoic about their experiences, a little bit silent. And when they do open up, it's always very emotional. Or to me, it always, you have to gain their trust, yes. as you did, and then they start telling you things, and then it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah, and I would agree. I, I think yeah. I've spoken, to, I've interviewed more than 100 World War II veterans um, for you know a handful of books and, I don't know, dozens of newspaper columns and, and featured stories. Um, and I would totally agree with you. Uh, and why would they? they? They're very reluctant to talk about it. Number one, they were from a generation where you didn't kiss and tell. You didn't um, do something heroic and then beat your chest. You didn't, when you scored the touchdown, you didn't turn to the camera. Uh, yeah. Instead, you went back to your team and you got ready for the next play. That's just who they were as a generation. Number two, um, they couldn't remember some of the stuff, frankly. Um, yeah. And number three, um, it was simply too painful to remember. I, I remember one, I wrote a book called uh, uh, American Nightingale, uh, published by Simon & Schuster in 2004, 
about the first nurse to die after the landings at Normandy. And I had this one guy who was part of this, this medical unit and he, I would get him on the, the landing craft and get him ashore to Utah beach. And then he kept turning around and taking me in our story back to England. And he would say, well, I was, I was billeted with a family uh, in England. And, and I would say, well, I know that, but okay, you're on Utah beach. You've arrived. Uh, this is war. What do you see? And then he would go, oh, I remember some good times back in England when we were billeted there with the English. And finally, I realized what was going on. He looked in the distance and he was quiet. And I said, what do you see when you got at Utah Beach? And he just said, they were hanging from the trees. And I said, who? And he goes, well, the paratroopers. Our paratroopers who had, had jumped in the, uh, on D-Day in the middle of the night and uh, they, they're parachutes had gotten hung up in the trees and the Germans had used them as target practice. Mm. And so this is what they first saw. So you can understand why they wouldn't want to tell that story because it is so deeply embedded in their psyche and it's a painful memory. So why would I want to tell somebody about that? So it's only as, as I pestered them as a reporter that a lot of these images would come forth. Yeah. yeah. It's obviously very painful. Yeah. Them. You mentioned, obviously, your long career as a columnist, and you have a writer's workshop. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I have, um, uh, until COVID hit, I've been doing workshops since about 2005 here in Oregon. Um, Beachside Writers is what we called it, and uh, we gather about 50 people, and and uh, it's just a fascinating time because when you bring in writers, the one thing we have in common is the is the, you know, putting words together in a certain order to tell some kind of a story. But the fascinating thing is if you have 50 people, they have 50 different passions, they have 50 different styles, they have 50 sets of questions for you as the workshop leader. But we did that for about 15 years and then kind of shut it down. And then we've been doing just some smaller ones here in the Eugene area. But I'm just always fascinated by the diversity when it comes to writing and um, how, uh, how passionate people can become about it and some, and and how fearful as well. A lot of, a lot of young writers, one of the things that stops them is they just say, well, I'm, I'm not a writer. And the first thing I try to tell them, I says, do you write? Yes. Well, then you're a writer. I mean, when I take my golf clubs and go play golf, it doesn't matter whether I shoot a 68 or a 168. I'm a golfer, you know, I may be really bad, but I'm a golfer. So it's hard to sort of convince people that they are, worthy of the craft as it were and uh, so it's it's very exciting for me to see somebody tell their story maybe it's just a family story um, uh, one woman wrote a book about being a middle school teacher another wrote a book about hiking the the Oregon portion of the Pacific Crest Trail which by the way I have done myself I'm trying to do the entire 2600 miles um, but I, everybody's got a different passion and and it's it's just fun when you actually see their, you know, their book in your hand and, and uh, see that they, they, they uh, accomplished what they committed to and uh, they told their story. Have some gone on that have been in your group to, to publish uh, professionally? A, a, a very small handful of have been uh, published uh, by publishers. Most of these are self-published books, mm -hmm. but I tell them, uh, I tell everybody that the, the difference between being published and the difference and, and publishing yourself in the last 20 years 
has really um, grown razor thin. Uh, my experience, and I've been published by Simon and Schuster and and uh, Saint Martin's Press and and uh, uh, some others. They really, once the book is out, they're not going to do a whole lot to uh, promote your book. The days of sending authors on 25 city tours, unless your name is John Grisham or Cheryl Strait or something, those days are gone. Basically, they're expecting you to promote and sell and market your book. Yeah. Um, so basically, they are kind of like printers who will get your book distributed. Well, again, back in the early 2000s, distribution was a big thing, right? Because we had lots of brick and mortar bookstores. Well, yeah. 2021, how many brick and mortar bookstores do we have? Not that many. So again, if you do it, if you get a good quality book and you, 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 you've gone the extra mile to have people, you know, professionals edit your book, um, your book's going to look very similar to John Grisham's or Cheryl Strade's when somebody goes on Amazon and orders it. So Absolutely. again, the difference is not that, that wide anymore between self-published and, you know, Knopf or Simon and Schuster or St. Martin's. Yeah, I agree. This book, your latest book came out in April. Are you working on a new project, a new book? Um, right now I am basically, um, trying to help other people kind of land their planes as it were. I've got about four clients right now. Uh, one is writing a book about uh, the bully culture at a, at a large Fortune 500 company. Um, uh, others are writing about, uh, you know, navigating the youth sports culture today. Uh, gone are the days of just throwing out the soccer ball and letting kids play. It's now, you know, do I need a personal trainer for my eight-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 67, so it, it kind of blows me away. Um, I'm writing about a, uh, or I'm helping a, uh, a man who was born in India and came to the United States shortly before 9-11, tell his story about what it was like to be uh, bullied as a kid um, right after 9-11, because you, in the, in the eyes of a lot of his elementary school team uh, classmates, he was a terrorist. And uh, he wound up ready to jump from the Golden Gate Bridge at age 26. Uh, did not, obviously. But uh, yeah, I'm busying myself helping other people do their books. And, and I find it fascinating. I'm writing about a University of Oregon half-miler who, uh, of the half-million employees of, at Nike, only four have outlasted him. Mm. And uh, so it's interesting. It, it sounds it. The book is called Saving My Enemy, How Two World War II Soldiers Fought Against Each Other and Later Forged a Friendship That Saved Their Lives. Bob, thank you very much for being here. My okay. pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, my guest will be Mitch Yockelson. His World War I book is called 47 Days, How Pershing's Warriors Came of Age to Defeat the German Army in World War I. Well, the Lost Battalion uh, is somewhat of a misnomer, as often happens in history. And to summarize, the conglomeration of units had been separated from the main body of the 77th, and they ended up kind of fighting together. They were neither lost or were they a true battalion. They essentially were trapped and shot at by German troops who had surrounded them. That's next time. 
and stay up to date with all the upcoming guests. Sign up for the Point of the Spear pipeline at robchild.net. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.